Hello, you are listening to So What, a podcast from Canadian Mennonite University. CMU is in Treaty 1 territory, Winnipeg, Manitoba. I'm your host, Jonas Cornelson, joining you from Treaty 7, Calgary, Alberta. And I'll explain everything about what we're doing here in a couple minutes, but I just can't wait to play you this clip from my source material today. Listen to this wacky description of some Mennonite guys in from 1634. According to William Brereton, an English visitor to Tunison's six-story Amsterdam Inn in 1634, the Mennonite had created his own perpetual motion device, a most curious waterwork at an infinite charge, he wrote, which powered moving devices in the rooms below. The waterwork located at the top of the house also powered wind and string instruments and bells whose music entertained visitors. In the loft was a fascinating scene of mechanical women and men performing various agricultural tasks, such as milking a cow with the milk squirting from the udders, or an ox which pissed strongly. Moving down to the waterwork, the visitor saw a ball tossed and danced two yards high by the strength and force of the water spout. And this represented, it seems, the sun with the figure of the earth and half moon and a star much to the life. There were also birds flying in the water and a couple boys standing uh, nearby, a few meters apart and pissing stoutly one at the other, while a woman had water flowing out of her breasts, while various animals spewed water out of their mouths. It's an interesting place to visit. <laughs> Apparently charged a lot for his drinks. Okay, I'm very willing to bet that is not what you had in mind. But I didn't just start there for fun. I mostly did. This is one example of how new approaches to religious freedom and diversity in the Dutch Republic allowed for serious intellectual and practical creativity among local Mennonite groups in the 16th and 17th centuries. The implications go well beyond pissing statues. You probably know the story of Galileo, from Italy, getting into all sorts of trouble with the Roman Catholic Church around 1613 for suggesting the Earth might revolve around the Sun and also that the Bible was not a natural science textbook. You may not have known that around the same time, and even earlier, Mennonites and others in the Netherlands were thinking thoughts like this with no trouble at all from the authorities. And that finally brings me to the subject matter of this episode, because I didn't know any of this stuff about free-thinking Mennonites, weird statues, religious freedom, and the Dutch Republic, until I listened to a CMU public lecture from March 2023 by Professor Gary Waite from the University of New Brunswick in Fredericton. Professor Waite was invited to speak as part of the John and Margaret Friesen lecture series, which have brought speakers on Anabaptist Mennonite history annually since 2002. I never even knew about these lectures, despite being a student at CMU for five years. How could I have been so distracted? We don't need to get into that. In the spirit of this podcast title, as I'll now be doing once every quarter, I'm going to take some dry-sounding academic content and ask, so what? Why do I care about this? Does it affect my life if I'm not a Mennonite history scholar, or not a scholar at all, or maybe not even a Mennonite? I don't know if it'll affect your life, but by the time we're done here, you'll hopefully know a little more about how some minority Christian groups in the Netherlands could explore new religious ideas without fear of punishment, and this gave them creative freedom to the extent that they arguably influenced some towering figures in the history of philosophy and science. In the end, this is a story about the relationship between religion, science, and society, 
and one that might sound a bit different than the ones you're used to. To keep ourselves organized, I'm going to tell this story in three scenes. Our first scene begins about a century before that weird dude's Amsterdam Inn. I'm calling it Apocalypse Not Now. How Failed Prophetic Predictions Changed Anabaptism. The famed religious toleration of the Dutch was itself a product of the history of Anabaptism. To see how this development transpired, we need to go back to the heyday of the militant Anabaptist movement. If you're not familiar, the word Anabaptist is a broad term for a group of Christian reformers who, starting in the 16th century, decided to baptize people as adults instead of babies. And as you'll hear, some of them also did much wilder stuff. On June 25th, 1535, the Anabaptist-controlled city of Münster in Westphalia fell to its besiegers, ending an experiment with an Anabaptist state that had, for its short life, become a center of hope for thousands of people who took seriously the prophetic message of lay preachers like Melchior Hoffman that Christ was returning very soon to establish the kingdom of God on earth. Thousands of Dutch Anabaptists tried to make it to the city of God but were turned back while smaller numbers captured a Frisian convent and Amsterdam City Hall, both of which were quickly recaptured, or in February 1535, stripped naked and walked through the city streets crying woe upon the sinful population. They were, in their own words, proclaiming the naked truth. For most Anabaptists, the ignoble end to the city of God and the government's continued persecution was so disillusioning that they abandoned the movement entirely. Others were led by Menno Simons to turn away from such prophetic predictions and the violence associated with Münster to establish the Stillen in dem Land, the peaceful folk who would no longer seek to transform the social political order along biblical lines, but do so only within their own community of the faithful. Basically, Menno Simons says to his followers, hey, let's stop messing around at trying to take over cities. That didn't go well. Our understanding of what the Bible says about living together, that's probably something people should sign up for voluntarily. The civil authorities will do what they do. Hopefully they don't keep arresting us. At a similar time, after the fall of Munster, another Anabaptist leader named David Joris was still in a bit more of an apocalypse now mood, though on a smaller scale. Here's how that worked out for him. Already inclined to mysticism, Joris expected that he would be unveiled as the new Messiah on Christmas Day, 1538. When that failed and dozens of his supporters arrested, Joris too turned away from literal fulfillment of scripture to spiritualism. Stop. Spiritualism is a key aspect of this story. Beyond helping Anabaptists not get arrested, in a couple minutes we'll also learn how it opened the door to new kinds of scientific inquiry among Anabaptists and Mennonites. But first, I'm going to play a bit more of the previous clip to set up what spiritualism is. Joris too turned away from literal fulfillment of scripture to spiritualism, an approach to religious identity emphasizing the non-physical or inner significance of religious beliefs, rites, and practices, and depreciation of external manifestations. Instead of retreating into the safety of the communal fellowship, as Menno had done, Joris and his supporters retreated to their inner consciences. This religion they could practice anywhere and pretend to be orthodox among their neighbors, as Joris did successfully until his death in Basel. To sum it up, 
In the decades after the Munster City of God disaster, the Anabaptist movement figured out how to channel its energy into milder things, like voluntary communal living or an inner spiritual life. These shifts in focus definitely helped calm things down for Anabaptists, just in time for a new era of religious freedom in the Netherlands. We'll pick up the story there in scene two, The Republic Does Not Strike Back. While the Anabaptist movement figured itself out through the later 1500s, a major political shift beyond the movement was the Dutch revolt against Spain that led to the founding of the Dutch Republic. As Professor Waite tells it, Anabaptists weren't too directly involved in this conflict, but it affected them substantially, and spiritualist influence was present in the new social-religious structure. As the Dutch revolt against Spain raged around them, the Anabaptists now watched from the sidelines. In 1579, the northern provinces signed the Union of Utrecht, stipulating that each region would be responsible to manage its religious affairs and that no one's conscience was to be violated. The leader of the Protestant forces, Prince William of Orange, was inspired by the spiritualist Cornhert to promote complete freedom of religion. That's what he wanted, complete freedom of religion. For various reasons too technical to describe in detail, they didn't quite end up with complete freedom of religion, but you were not forced to be part of the more established Dutch Reformed Church, and you wouldn't get arrested for promoting non-mainstream religious ideas. Emphasis on ideas, though, you didn't want to try taking over cities again. In this newly more tolerant environment, the Mennonite emphasis on less authoritarian leadership, including choosing their preachers by lot, rather than by virtue of specific training, became attractive to more people. One particularly liberal Mennonite group that grew at this time preferred the term Dopskizinden, or baptism-minded people. They still more or less fit under the Mennonite umbrella, but emphasized freedom of thought more than communal living standards. And, as Professor Waite explains, their lack of theological study actually became a feature in how they thought up new ideas. Well, we have time for only a brief overview of some of this innovation, which began with Menno's innovation in social organization and which helped inspire a desire for non-authoritarian leadership and governance more widely. They chose their ministers by lot, trusting in God, so that many artisans and other lay people, lay men, were selected. The preachers were excluded from the kind of university training in scripture interpretation and logic that the Reformed had meaning that they were not as constrained by those orthodox traditions. Some Dobskisind pastors received higher degrees, but not in theology or philosophy. Instead, they chose fields that could provide an income, such as medicine, since initially preachers were unsalaried. This has at least two ramifications. First, they would have not been as fearful of innovative interpretation of scripture as the Reformed neighbors, who were constrained by quite strict approaches to hermeneutics and a theology. Second, the Mennonite sermons would instead have reflected the ways of thinking of skilled artisans, merchants, and medical practitioners, with efforts to illustrate their message with examples drawn from real-life experience, inventions, and medical knowledge. One of these Mennonite preachers was Dr. Willemson, whose medical background led him to assert that there was no devil out there who could make you sick, still a pretty common thought at the time, but the devil more symbolically represented inner temptations. 
in this short clip, he slams both academia and medical misinformation. Take a listen. So Dr. Willemsen restricts the devil to tempting people to turn their faith away from God to the kind of high knowledge of the universities that results only in confessional disputes. So he's criticizing the university training in theology and philosophy. Or Satan deludes the simple folk into accepting visions as divine messages, something that Tunison had also complained about uh, and which Willemsen worried would encourage these folk to refuse his prescribed medications. So Willemsen preaches like the physician he was trained to be. That's one example, but the spiritualist rethinking of things wasn't just about the devil. One of their key moves was to figure out that the Bible's authority should be restricted to the inner spiritual life and not be applied to observing how the outer world works. In other words, science. So religious matters were focused on the inner spiritual journey, while secular matters subject to rational analysis, as was the text of Scripture. Well, this turn away from scripture as an authoritative source of knowledge for the natural world was happening elsewhere. Our Dobbsgesinden were in many respects pioneers, and being in the Dutch Republic, they could pursue this different approach without fear of arrest. The difficulties faced in 1613 by Galileo, for example, when he argued that the earth revolved around the sun in apparent contradiction to the biblical account of God commanding the sun to stand still so that Joshua could eradicate his foes are, are, are well known. He denied that heliocentrism was contrary to scripture and affirmed that the Bible was in fact no authority at all on the nature of the cosmos, only on faith and ethics. Our spiritualistic nonconformists had come to that conclusion decades earlier. Quick reminder that where we are in our story is less than a century after the older Anabaptist cousins of these Dobskizinde took over a city and tried to make the apocalypse happen. It's truly remarkable that these people are now active members of Dutch society, freely debating ideas that were banned in Italy. The guy Tunison from the beginning with his waterworks and weird statues, including astronomical symbolism, probably also wouldn't have found as receptive an audience among Roman Catholic authorities. And our story is not one of science pushing religion out of the way, as we often imagine. I want to end this scene with one more character, by the name of Drabel, who explicitly linked his religion with his scientific work, and whose observers linked his scientific work back to his religious context. For Drabel, the divine spirit infused and activated the cosmos as well as inspiring the human mind. He explicitly linked his religious worldview with his scientific, believing that being inspired by the divine spirit could result in comprehending how the universe worked and to create models of it. The extent of his inventiveness is mind-boggling. Prior to his move to England, in, um, he patented an improved water pump in 1598 and a self-winding clock that could operate on its own for years. The climax, however, seems to have been his submarine, which he successfully operated under the Thames River in full view of the king in 1625. One of those who described it was Constantine Haugens, father of the famed mathematician Christian Haugens, in a 1631 writing. Thanks to their innovations in religious identity, leadership, and community, and thanks also to the strong streak of spiritualism that informed so much of their thinking, such Mennonites helped to make innovation in natural philosophy and technology a positive thing in the Dutch Republic. 
I find it fascinating that this is a story of new religious thought and practice creating space for new kinds of understanding about nature, engineering, and even religion itself. And these changes came largely from the ground up, not the high minds of philosophers and theologians, no offense to my former profs at CMU, but artisans, inventors, and doctors who often credited their curiosity to a divine spirit. Our final scene in today's story picks up that theme of how social and intellectual changes happen. We'll meet some big-time philosophy rock stars of the 1600s and see how some of them might have even been hanging out with these wild and free-thinking Dutch Mennonites. Scene 3. Who Enlightened Who? Subtitle. Industrious Mennonites Produce Raw Materials for Famous Philosophers. This is the standard assumption made by most historians of philosophy and science, that Dutch religious nonconformists, like our Mennonites, adapted the new philosophical ideas developed by the intellectual elites or giants, and then added some helpful elements along the way. What Professor Waite has done here, with the help of a jazzy ringtone in the background, is basically compare the standard story of philosophy to trickle-down economics. Power, ideas, and influence come from the top, bits and pieces get distributed along the way. But we already know from scene two that our Dobskazinda friends and others were doing some pretty significant work of their own, even starting in the late 1500s. With that in mind, notice in this next clip when, and even where, some of these giants were roaming the landscape of ideas. And historians of philosophy and, um, also tend to see nothing new of any consequence in their field until around 1640, they say, when Descartes, Thomas Hobbes, Baruch Spinoza, John Locke, and Isaac Newton all began puzzling through how humans could know a thing and the nature of the cosmos and humanity's place within it. Yet, it was precisely in the preceding decades when religious nonconformists, like Anabaptists, Spiritualists, and Mennonites, were already rethinking religion, society, and the natural world in the freer environment of the Dutch Republic. Their contributions to new approaches to knowledge creation and social organization, I suggest, provided the more famous philosophers with the raw materials they needed as they worked through the problem of the human condition. It's noteworthy that Descartes, Spinoza, and Locke all lived in the Dutch Republic when they composed their most groundbreaking works. I love thinking about these more practically-minded Mennonites developing raw materials for these philosophers who had become so famous. But anyway, it's hard to overstate the implications of what Professor Waite is saying here. Whether or not you know the names of these dead white guys he just mentioned, you know their work. I think therefore I am. Heard that one? That's Descartes. I'm not saying these guys stole anything from Mennonites. But when you listen to Professor Waite describe the kinds of circles that Spinoza and Descartes rolled in, the trickle-down theory of philosophy becomes a lot less compelling. It appears to be much more an exchange of ideas. Spinoza especially had several Dobskazinda friends who actively debated with him and who actively and crucially supported his work. While this is a fact often mentioned, most scholars of Spinoza assume the intellectual influence went only one way again. And even when Spinoza took a position contrary to his Dobskazinda friends, we must remember too that any new ideas are typically developed through discussion and debate. 
And Descartes, who liked to pretend that he thought up his ideas all on his own, was similarly immersed in Dutch society, producing a child with his Dutch maid, for example, and getting to know a Mennonite cobbler and self-taught Copernican and writer of navigational works, Dirk Rembrandtsen van Nierop, Descartes is said to have occasionally attended local Mennonite churches to hear the preaching of peasants and artisans. Now that is quite something. I gotta tell you, before I heard this lecture, I had never pictured René Descartes hanging out with Mennonite peasants. Anyway, we so do not have time to give a full picture of Descartes and Spinoza's work or try to trace the influence of these religious groups, but... Just for comparison's sake, I'm going to read a short quote from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy's entry on Baruch Spinoza. Quote, Spinoza's extremely naturalistic views on God, the world, the human being, and knowledge serve to ground a moral philosophy centered on the control of the passions leading to virtue and happiness. They also lay the foundations for a strongly democratic political thought and a deep critique of the pretensions of scripture and sectarian religion. End quote. Did any of that sound familiar? The spiritualists that we met also embraced a much more naturalistic view of the world, people, and knowledge. Not so much God, perhaps, but you can see the connections. They also intentionally avoided the more rigid approaches to scripture and religion that they saw in the Catholic and Reformed churches. Sounds like they had a friend in Spinoza. All that to say, I think Professor Waite is very much onto something in arguing that, just like with natural science, the influence of the Enlightenment's rock star philosophers on religious thought and practice is not so one-sided as we might have thought. Speaking of rock stars, this whole theme of who enlightened who, or whom if you prefer, very weirdly but irresistibly reminds me of Australian rock legends ACDC's track, Who Made Who. For purely educational purposes, Let's get out of here on a chorus. Alright, we've been through a lot here, but I have to admit I still feel like I'm reaching for that really practical implication that so what or why do I care about this? And there isn't really a single obvious takeaway, but for me, spending time with the spiritualists was a good reminder that being open to change and new ideas is less about what you believe, and more about how you believe it. In the end, it was new methods of thought and practice, in a more open society, that gave some Dutch Mennonites a head start on some of the biggest changes of the era we now call the Enlightenment. Pretty cool. Well, I had a ton of fun trying to tease out some stories from Professor Waite's presentation. Thank you to Professor Waite for his work, to CMU for hosting public events and letting me share my take on them, and most of all, thanks to you for listening. We used to do this show monthly, but I have a few more things going on in my life now, so as I mentioned off the top, we're shifting to a quarterly publication schedule. Every three months, I'll be doing a deep dive like this into some of CMU's latest public programming. Hope you'll join me again. You can listen to previous episodes and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to send a message or leave a comment, the best way is our Facebook page at facebook.com slash so what podcast. 
My name is Jonas Cornelson. Thanks again for sticking with me, and I'll talk to you in December. Take care. <laughs>